0: Our topic this morning is the impassibility of God, which is the doctrine that God does not suffer. So passable, in this context, is related to our word for passion, or for suffering, like we might speak of the passion of Christ, by which we mean his suffering. To say God is impassible then, is to affirm that he does not and indeed, he cannot, in his essence, as God, suffer. He is not passable, but rather he is impassable. Now, this attribute of God has been held by virtually the whole church in the whole world for the whole of her existence. It may seem counterintuitive to us. There are lots of reasons for that, I think. But as I've said A lot about the Christian God is counterintuitive to us. And this aspect, if you will, this dimension of God, is a a place where modern people bristle. But really it was anything but counterintuitive or problematic for the historical church. It was joyfully proclaimed. It was understood as indispensable for Christian theism. And one of the things we see in this series on God, I hope, is that there are a lot of Christians who have not yet embraced Christian theism, at least in a robust way. This is indispensable for Christian theism. So you've had this consistent testimony, but when you get to the 20th century and then into the, now into the 21st, you know, that, this has been a time of convulsion in the world and in the world of theology. And what many, you know, many uh, ripple effects or fallout that we see from this convulsion, among them, there has been a steady questioning. Indeed, an abandonment of the classical doctrine of God's impassibility. So in the 20th century, and now into the 21st, we see a massive abandonment flight from this idea. And if you want the main reason for this, I can give it to you in one word. Auschwitz. Or more broadly, the Holocaust. In the face of such horrific evil, the idea that God doesn't suffer with us, or with the millions of innocent victims, the people of his covenant, no less, That idea has been deemed unacceptable, even repugnant. Thus, the idea of an impassable God has come under withering, and I mean withering, criticism from all all sides, many of the sides inside the church. The idea of an impassable God is too Greek, we've repeatedly been told. It's too stoic. It's too much in debt to Hellenistic thought and not to the Bible, especially to the Hebrew Bible. For the God of the Bible is unlike the God of the philosophers. He's passionate, and he's fierce, and he weeps, and he pleads, and he loves, and he hates. He's provoked. He's tender. He's deeply emotionally implicated in the lives of his creatures. And that means, surely, he suffers with us. It would be appalling. It would be heartless to think otherwise. Elie Wiesel, the famous Jewish author, Holocaust survivor, in his memoir, gripping memoir called Night, wrote of watching a young child hung with two others in front of thousands of spectators in a Nazi death camp. Then, being forced to walk past the hanging victims, he writes this, but the third rope was still moving. The child, too light, was still breathing. And so he remained for more than half an hour, lingering between life and death, writhing before our eyes. And we were forced to look at him at close range. He was still alive when I passed him. His tongue was still red. His eyes not yet extinguished. Behind me, I heard a man asking, for God's sake, where is God? And from within me, I heard a voice answer, where is he? This is where, hanging here, from this gallows. Weizel probably meant this is where God dies for the modern man. He dies hanging here with this kid. But it's been taken to mean If there is to be a God at all after Auschwitz, he must suffer in our suffering. And if this is so, the narrative goes, we have to abandon the classical doctrine of impassibility. We do not want a God who does not suffer. This view was perhaps most famously and effectively put forth by the German theologian, Jürgen Moltmann. Moltmann in 1973 authored an influential book entitled The Crucified God. It's a very moving book. Moltmann believed that we need God himself as God, as divine, in his divinity. We need that God suffering and hanging on the gallows with broken and anguished humanity. Any other answer, Moltmann said, would be blasphemy. To speak of a God here who could not suffer would be to make God a demon. God in Auschwitz and Auschwitz in the crucified God, Moltmann said, that is the basis for real hope. So as you can see, there is a lot at stake here. And it is an emotionally fraught issue, especially after the horror the world has witnessed in the 20th century. So with that, we'll make three points. They're there in your bulletin on the outline. The impassible God, passionate language, and the impassible suffers. First then, the impassable God. And here I want to state with a little bit more precision exactly what it is we're affirming. Impassibility means God is unable. He is not capable. It is impossible for him to suffer. A God who suffered in his being as God would not be the Christian God. Now, we are not affirming that God is stoic or that he's indifferent to human misery or that he's detached or that he's uncaring or that he's uninvolved. No one doubts that God cares, that he understands. Nor do we mean that God is somehow static or inert. When we say God is impassible, we do not mean he's apathetic. We've already referred in this series to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, the chapter on God, which tells us God is without body, parts, body, comma, parts, comma, or passions. And passions here means suffering, emotional fluctuations, any sort of change or suffering. This is simply the Catholic and Reformed view of God. He has no passions. The point for our purposes is that God is not acted on. He is not caused to suffer by external forces or by something from within his own being. God can suffer neither from without nor from within. He cannot be harmed, compromised, manipulated, victimized, diminished, thwarted, altered in any way if he could the forces that did that to him would be greater than God or at least exercise leverage over his being thus God cannot suffer he cannot suffer now I know some of you are thinking but what about this or what about that or what about Jesus so let's go slow and I want to start with the one essence of God, the undivided divinity of God shared by all three persons. Impassibility is easily deduced from and bound up with, entailed by, a number of other attributes we've already looked at. Remember, at a bare minimum, we have to say every attribute of God implies all the other attributes. So I'm just going to take a minute to think through the, a few attributes. So most obviously, impassibility follows from immutability, which we looked at a few weeks ago. And all all the scripture texts we use there would apply here. Psalm 102, Hebrews 6, James 1, 1 Samuel 15. There's a whole array of texts which say that God is unchanging. Any Any text which asserts that God doesn't change implies that he doesn't suffer. If he suffers in his Godhead, then his divinity is fluctuating and changing. So the immutable God cannot suffer. Secondly, we saw that God is ase, meaning he possesses aseity, which means he's independent of the creature. He's fully self-sufficient. And such a being cannot be emotionally afflicted by his creatures. Or think of God's knowledge. I mean, think of this. If God knows all infallibly and in eternity, and we affirm that he does, infallibly, eternally, decrees all that comes to pass, then he certainly can't be surprised or caught off guard or suddenly grieved or find himself needing to respond to something, you know, unforeseen when he's seen everything from all eternity. Or think of God's simplicity. God does not have Parts. Not just body parts. He has no immaterial, invisible parts. There's no composition of any kind in God. Thus, here's the, here's the takeaway from this. All that is in God is God. Right? All that is in God is God. Which means you couldn't isolate the suffering of God to a part of God. So either all of God suffers, in which case he's not God, or none of God suffers, in which case he's impassable. And the church has said he's impassable. One more attribute here. Think further of God's happiness. His infinite blessedness. God blesses us. We bless God. All because God. Now the verb here is everything. God is blessed. That is, he is fully happy and delighted in being himself. This is pervasively affirmed in Scripture. Listen listen to God's word. Psalm 106. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. In Romans 9, Paul speaks of Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. 1 Timothy speaks of the blessed God. Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians of God who is blessed forever. And we could go on and on. For example, our New Testament lesson from Romans 1 speaks of the creator who is blessed forever. Precisely because God is not a creature, but is the creator, he is blessed, meaning transcendent, infinitely happy forever. We do not think about God's pleasure in being God, his divine, full, replete happiness enough his eternal, indestructible blessedness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we don't think about this because we are constantly ratcheting him down and correlating him to ourselves and making him a big, big, super big person in the sky. We're ratcheting his down his godness to something we can manage. If God is blessed, and he is, and he is infinitely so, then he can suffer no grief. No modification. No loss. Right? His sovereign serenity and his peace remain undisturbed, even by war. It's not as if God is in heaven saying, I'm really happy, but this situation in the Ukraine is kind of really taking the edge off of it today. And that's not to mock the situation or make light of it. But people need to step up to the microphone and own the stuff that they think makes God more accessible. As if in all eternity, in the heavenly glory and splendor of the triune being, God is going to say, this is really great, but it'd be better if your Uncle Joe was here. These are deeply defective doctrines of the Holy Trinity and his intrinsic, infinite, replete, Full, perfect, complete happiness. Passability, then, the idea that God suffers is simply incompatible with any of the perfections of God. You can't have any of them. Not a single attribute or perfection of God remains if the divine essence suffers. So, now, I am not unaware of the emotional force of someone like Maltman who you know, passionately argues. That's a pun. He passionately argues for God who suffers with us. It can be moving. It can even be comforting, at least at first glance. But here, as you can probably tell, I'm punching back. I'm pushing back And there's a couple more things I want to consider as we push back. right? Because you're you're back on your heels when this person starts with the Holocaust and tells you he must have a God who is with us in our misery. And that has been very effective in the 20th century. But as I've tried to just briefly demonstrate, you're going to have to give up all of Christian theism to embrace this. But I want to say a couple other things. First is this. It should be clear That God is impassable, not because he's cold or he lacks compassion, but precisely because he is the fullness of perfect being, because he could not be any more compassionate or merciful or loving or concerned than he already is. It's not like he says, you know, I really love the people of the Ukraine, but now that this war started, I really, really love them. I'm really involved with them now. God is impassable because it's impossible for him to be any more compassionate or loving or concerned than he already is in the fullness of his being. And if suffering could induce some improvement or move him to be better or more near or really, really compassionate, then suffering would indicate that he is not God. Second, given the human predicament. We don't really need a God who's bound up with suffering as we are. Imagine, if you will, that you need a major surgery to save your life. And the doctor comes in and says, oh, I've got the same thing you have. And I'm in agony today. I'm right there with you, suffering. In fact, like you, I slept terrible last night. Right? You might want to get him fixed. Right? The doctor fixed before they try to fix you. The great physician is not the sick and suffering physician. He's healthy and he's whole and he's full of life and he's ever fresh with power and wisdom to restore us. Right? The same thing if your house is on fire. Your neighbor starts yelling about how sympathetic they are because their house is also on fire. Or they light themselves on fire to show their solidarity with you. You need someone from the fire department to show up who is not singed with flames. Who is stable, calm, equipped, and not undergoing your plight. To save you from your plight. Certainly we don't want someone showing up who is undergoing the same emotional fluctuations as we are. So in fact, it turns out that only an impassable God can save suffering people. So that's impassibility. The second point is passionate language. And here I'll be brief because we've covered this before from numerous angles. So hopefully this is not a surprise, but there is an array of passages which speak of God as you know, pleading, as angry, as furious, as emotionally distressed with Israel. What about these texts? Well, we've seen that God is a simple spirit. Even though a quick, naive reading of the Bible would show that he has hands and nostrils and fingers and arms and feet and legs. Right? It turns out that just a quick, surface, naive reading of the Bible can really lead a person astray. We all easily recognize that the arms, feet, legs... is that We recognize that those are anthropomorphisms, right? They describe God in the form of a man, even though God is not a man. Most of us here have no trouble with that. We don't take these texts literally. They're metaphorical ways of pointing to something in God. Well, the same is true with all the texts about God's apparently changing emotions, his grief, his disappointment. This is called anthropomorphism. Pathic language. So anthropomorphic language is language where God is spoken of in the form of a man. Anthropopathic language is language where God is spoken of as having the passions of a man. It's the same basic idea. So we, you, know, you have to decide, right? Does the scripture teach that God has unalterable dispositions and affections? That he's not like Zeus or a better version of Zeus? He has virtues which are not subject to variation. So this language of grief or regret or fury is figurative language. Now we could talk about what it means, but it it certainly means we experience God as if he were angry. This is a complex area, but the point is whatever you're going to do with this language, it cannot refer to tumult or turbulence in the being of God. And again, there's nothing novel about this. Here's John Owen, the 17th century English theologian. He says this, If God be properly and literally angry and furious and wrathful, then he is moved, troubled, and perplexed, and is neither blessed nor perfect. In strict propriety of speech, Jonathan Edwards says, there is no such thing as any pain or grief or trouble in God. So this, this passionate language, about it we must affirm with Augustine. So notice, here's Augustine in the 4th century. Say, he says this, You love without burning. You are jealous in a way that is free of anxiety. You repent without the pain of regret. You are wrathful and remain tranquil. Finally then, finally, the impassible suffers. The impassable God the God whose essence is beyond suffering, becomes incarnate in Jesus Christ. And as man, not in his divine nature, but as man, in his humanity, he suffers. So if you want to say something like the humanity of God suffers, it's perfectly orthodox. The person of the Son of God suffers in his human nature, not in his divine essence. Again, think about what it would mean if God suffered in his divine essence. If God could suffer as God, the way modern theologians insist he must, if he could, then what? Well, the incarnation would be completely unnecessary. God could just inflict the suffering and punishment due to sin on his own divine being. The whole incarnation story would be superfluous. But the incarnation is necessary. And the incarnation is another place we can go. We can do this from the being of God, but when we look at God in Christ, incarnate in Jesus Christ, right? we we know now that impassibility, when we look into the face of Jesus, does not mean God lacks sympathy. We heard this from Hebrews 4 today. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and is yet without sin. God sympathizes with our weaknesses so much that he became man while remaining fully divine. He became man to enter our weaknesses and ultimately to bear them away. The one who suffers is divine. But he does not suffer as divine. That's 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 the whole sermon right there. I'll say that again. The one who suffers is divine, but he does not suffer as divine. He suffers as man in our flesh. Any other form of suffering, and this is an important thing to remember in this This debate. Right. Any other form of suffering would not be genuinely human suffering, whatever it might mean for God to suffer as God. It's nothing like my suffering. I'm suffering in my body. right? I'm suffering in my human constitution. So you're going to tell me that God is suffering in his eternal being and that's supposed to comfort me. That's not my suffering anyway. This is one of the things I would say to Moltmann, Right. It's not my suffering because of the difference between the creator and the creature, however God, quote, suffered as God, would have almost nothing to do with us. But God, who becomes man, and then suffers as a human being, that's genuinely my suffering. And here, we affirm that it is precisely... This is also important, beloved. It is precisely the absence of suffering in God which enables, which protects His love, His steadfastness, His perfect goodness from any assault, from any fluctuation. And what this means is That when out of his unchanging sympathy, out of the fullness of his love, out of his abundant mercy, which cannot be diminished, out of his unmeasured compassion, when he acts to save us in Jesus Christ, that act then, that action is pure gift, pure grace. It's not because God himself is suffering. Right? You're protecting the graciousness of grace here. When God acts, it is pure gift and pure grace. Only this one can save us and suffer for us. And thus we are saved, not in spite of God's impassibility, we are saved because of it. Now I realize you may, you know, you probably live in a world and travel in circles where you don't find impassibility under assault all the time. But if you get out in the theological world, right, and wander around, it's under assault everywhere. Only this one can save us. Only of this God shall it be said, as John prophesies in Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain, for the former things have passed away. God is committed to obliterating human suffering and misery, obliterating it completely. And when he does, at that time, the whole church will participate in a creaturely way in the impassable glory of God. Because in that day, suffering will be destroyed and banished. And like it has always been for God, it will be impossible for you to ever suffer again. Impassibility, partaking of it, if you will, is your destiny. Glory to the impassible God. Amen.